No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another installment of BOA Audio Season 9, and as promised uh, a few weeks ago, we're we're getting a little creepy here as we get closer to Halloween. We're doing some spooky stuff. We're doing some uh, unsettling stuff, definitely, here on the program tonight, as our guest is author Jeff Mudgett. He is uh, the author of the book Bloodstains, which details a really remarkable and and, and bizarre story uh, regarding his great-great-grandfather, Herman Webster Mudgett, who is more infamously known in the annals of crime history as H.H. Holmes, the notorious serial killer who took the lives of countless victims in the late 1800s and horrified America with his twisted murders. So uh, I've been a big fan, I guess you could say. <laughs> it's kind of a weird way of putting it. But I've, I've always had an interest in H.H. H. Holmes, a uh, supremely creepy individual and uh, someone who I think the full scope of his depravity just really hasn't exactly, I think, been unveiled uh, to the world yet. And, and that's remarkable considering he did all these crimes over 100 years ago. But he, he was truly, truly a uh, deranged and depraved individual. And strangely enough, poor uh, Jeff Mudgett is his great-great-grandson. And uh, he put together the book Bloodstains and talks about that and adds a whole new dimension to this story. So I'm really looking forward to it, really looking forward to uh, having my skin crawl a little bit as we talk about H.H. Holmes here on BOA Audio tonight. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Hey Tim, I got to tell you, I've been doing the I've been doing radio shows now for a couple of years, and your intro of your show and the intro of my book and story was the best one I've ever heard. Congratulations, dude! Wow, man, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Well, it's a real thrill to get you on the show because, like I said, uh, for for lack of a better term, I've been an H. H. Holmes fan for a long, for a long time. Uh, the guy's just really, really, really creepy. So. Uh, well, I guess we you know we start out the program sort of with the bio, the background. Tell folks, you know, who is Jeff Mudgett, and uh, you know, before you get into the sort of the H. H. Holmes connection, just give us some background on on who you are. 
you know, before we start, let me tell you, there's nothing, you don't have to feel guilty, Tim, about being fascinated by Holmes. And I try to tell my readers and your listeners that because this is perhaps the most evil human being that ever lived and someone that history has forgotten about until recently. Now that Hollywood wants to make $300 million movies about him, you know, we're going to get the story. And now that historians are starting to open the pages up and look at the truth and the facts as they come out, you know, they're starting to see, whoa, we should have we should have been talking about this guy a long time before, and shows like yours helped me do that, and I really appreciate it. But I got to tell you, I, I was 40 years old. I was living a normal life. I was a practicing criminal lawyer in California, had a house with a view of the bay, and all of a sudden, one night, my grandfather told me that my ancestor that I was the descendant of this monster and that he had kept the secret from the family for 60 years and he couldn't anymore and he needed us all to start helping him with this burden that he'd been bearing his entire life. It's pretty remarkable stuff. What was your reaction when you found out about all this? Tim, you can imagine, you know, my brothers and cousins are sitting around the table. These are guys that I've fished, hunted with, all that stuff. We punched each other on the arms. We made we made jokes about it. We asked for apple pie and a la mode. And then that night when I went home, it scared the crap out of me. And the next day, it started changing my life to where I couldn't practice law. I couldn't do those things you're supposed to do in America, you know, look for a bigger house, fancier car, all that stuff. Yeah. I needed to find out the truth because history had it wrong absolutely. Mm. Well, before we get into sort of your – because the, the, as I said in the introduction, the, the book really adds a whole new dimension to this story. You know what I mean? It adds an incredible new layer to the whole thing. So let's, I guess, let's sort of catch people up on who H.H. H. Holmes was and let's sort of give them the official, quote-unquote, version of, of his story so people can understand, you know, just how remarkable this dude really was. Yeah, and you know what? Let's start off with letting your listeners know. Imagine Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, and that's who we're talking about right here in America, in Chicago. So when we when we talk about Holmes, we talk about a man who grew up in New Hampshire, was a little boy with a, a middle-class family, had some episodes in his life which some think, you know, pushed him into that into that evilness he was. I I tend to disagree with that and I'll and I'll explain to you why. But this was a man who went to the University of Michigan Medical School, had one of the highest IQs ever recorded. He could have been a Louis Pasteur, Tim, if he'd wanted. He could have solved disease. Instead, he selected evil, which is one of the things I like to go on your show and discuss how this human being he was psychopathic, but he wasn't psychotic, and he made a choice about evil when he could have been something else. So he went to medical school. He figured out that the World's Fair was coming to Chicago, um, Tim, with millions of people. Mm-hmm. He bought a piece of property right at the junction where the railroads would meet, where he knew people had to get on and off to go to this fair. He built a hotel with a basement that would have made... Dr. Frankenstein envious. And, you know, the official story is of this murder castle and the the hundreds of people that he murdered, torturing and experimenting upon them. Hmm. Because he was fascinated with longevity, Tim. He wanted to learn how to live forever. And he was he was convinced that that secret was in the ovaries of young women. 
Ugh, spooky. Tell people about this castle, because this is, uh, I always find it kind of interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's so diabolical, you know, this dude, not only is he a crazed serial killer, but he, he, like, builds his own sort of, like, temple to, to killing, in a way, and, and it's like, whoa, this guy, he's, he's just beyond evil, in a way, it's really, really, like, like I said, it's diabolical. Exactly. You know, when the when the legal dictionaries put up premeditated, okay, they should just put a picture of his face. Here's a guy <laughs> that for four years planned this castle to murder, all right? Because the World's Fair was coming there and and when people when I go on shows they want to they want to compare him to Bundy and Gacy and those serial killers that you know, the terrible people of our society and they weren't even close to him. Here's a man who had assistants helping him murder, who had people going with him to Europe so that he could kill over there. This was a man who the New York Times wrote about during his trial when the jury came back and, and announced their uh, verdict that, you know, that he was guilty and the judge um, convicted him to death, that they had six or seven women stand up in the audience crying tears that their lover was going to be murdered or killed or executed. And I just, it's amazing to me, Tim, that history has ignored probably the most infamous, fascinating story of all times. And, and i got to tell your listeners, when I first started this project, my family hated me for doing this. They wanted me to do what the rest of the Mudgets had done, run away from this stigma. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I, I woke up a few days after my grandfather telling us that secret, Tim, and I decided, you know what? It had nothing to do with me. It wasn't a choice I made. No one asked me whether I wanted to be the descendant of H.H. H. Holmes, and I wasn't going to run away from it. Instead, I was going to try to explain to the world on shows like yours that what had been written about him before wasn't true, and we needed to come up with the facts. And and you know what? I'm really excited. We We've got uh, – We've got stuff going on now where we're going to get to exhume his grave in Philadelphia to see if he really was executed. We're going to get to excavate the grounds at the post office in Chicago at 63rd and Wallace to see if evidence proving he was Jack the Ripper is there. We have a lot of stuff happening now, Tim, because money is flowing into this story. Hmm. You've got Chinese money, you've got Hollywood money, you've got Paramount money, Netflix is interested. All of a sudden, people have realized this is the most, one of the most fascinating stories in American history. It's pretty, like I said, it's pretty amazing. It's really, it's remarkable too that, like you're saying, uh, it seems there's some kind of weird, like, cutoff of, like, serial killers in a way. It's like people only sort of get into the ones like it's almost like if they say Roswell started the UFO thing or uh, Arnold started the flying saucer thing. It's like almost like Manson started the serial killer uh, era, if you will. So a lot of the stuff before that gets forgotten about. It's kind of remarkable that way. Manson can't even carry Holmes's briefcase. I mean, <laughs> obviously, he's a terrible man. He's a horrible thing, which you know justice justice took care of. And but when people start trying to con compare the two it, it, oh, yeah, uh, bog yeah. it boggles my mind they pissed, you know what oh, yeah, the only yeah, way yeah. they do that Tim is if they haven't read have, have, they haven't read the history mm -hmm. yeah what I mean is just sort of like it seems like people only go that far back when they think about uh, notorious murderers or something like that you know what I mean it's gotcha, like a weird you're right. sort of sociological thing where it's like people sort of stop there they don't go any further back so but uh, Holmes was uh, pretty remarkable now 
one thing I was found was interesting is you know his name is is Herman Webster Mudgett. Of course, your name's Jeff Mudgett, and uh, but how did he get? I guess how did the H. H. Holmes name stick with him? I know he used a lot of aliases, but like, was that just his predominant alias that he went by most of the time? So that's why it stuck, or or why is it why is it now history knows him as H. H. Holmes rather than Herman Webster Mudgett? Great question. And for a while, we thought we knew Tim because it had something to do with Holmes's fascination with Sherlock Holmes. Then a friend of mine named Mark Potts, who's a Holmes historian alerted me that that probably wasn't true. And like you said, he had 31 different aliases, the ones we know of. Now, why he fascinated upon H.H. H. Holmes, I try, to, I try to tell people, you know, when you're trying to decipher the brain of a man whose IQ was over 180, it gets a little dicey. It gets yeah. a little dicey. And, and I try to stay away from doing trying to figure out how he thought of something. So when when we thought it was about Sherlock Holmes, I thought it was pretty cool. That was pretty lock solid. And now we pretty much know that it had nothing to do with Sherlock Holmes. So your question about why he liked H.H. H. Holmes, why he signed contracts with H.H. H. Holmes, I, I don't know. Hmm. All right. So we don't really know exactly like what. But did he, he must, was that one he used the most, what do you think? Or, I mean, I'm just kind of trying to like figure out why. I guess I guess it must have been. You know what I mean? It was it was it was the one he liked the most. He didn't like Herman Webster Mudgett. Besides the legality of using your real name when you're walking around America committing murders and and right. life insurance fraud. So, you know, obviously he had to grab an alias. But as far as like right now, we're investigating the passenger lists on the ships back and forth from New York to uh, Southampton for the Jack the Ripper issue. And none of those used either Mudgett or H.H. H. Holmes, but we're going to run those passenger lists through, which each contains a signature of each passenger. We're going to run those through the computers to find out which alias he used at that particular voyage. So, you know, we're looking at all that, and, and like I say, it's very, very difficult to try to, to jump into his shoes and figure out the rights and wrongs. Mm-hmm. Now, give people a little sort of taste of what it was, uh, we talked about the castle, uh, but t- I guess sort of it's hard. I've had a guest on before. We talked about sort of the World's Fair. It's hard for people to really kind of wrap their heads around what that was like at the time. But there were just countless people coming through Chicago at the time during the World's Fair, and that laid the groundwork for him just to just to kind of grab anyone he wanted, really, and 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 do away with them because there was so much human traffic through Chicago at the time. So I guess sort of paint a little picture of uh of what what exactly the scene was like uh when he was you know in the midst of his reign of terror there at the castle. Yeah, during the World's Fair the Chicago law enforcement was just overwhelmed, Tim. They had millions of people there from all around the country, all around the world. You had Edison, Tesla, some of the greatest scientists in the world showing their works and people had been planning on for years to come. Holmes knew that. I, I try to I try to portray him as like a lion over the savannah, and these thousands, hundreds of thousands of antelope below him, which the police weren't capable of keeping track of. So that when he'd go down to the train station, I write about it in the prologue to the book. When he'd go down to the train station and watch the different young ladies getting off the train. 
that night for the next morning to go to the fair, their dream of their lifetime. He'd select one, push them, push them, push them toward his hotel, set them up in the room that he could introduce gas into the room. He could either asphyxiate them or render them unconscious. Then have his assistants go up to the room, send her down a greased chute. And this isn't something I'm making up in my story. This was written about in The Devil in the White City, The Torture Doctor, Depraved. The New York Times covered these stories. He'd send the gal down these chutes, to where another assistant would catch her and put her on a gurney, strap her to this gurney, and prepare her for the doctor in his surgical apron to come down and operate. So whatever torture or terror you have in your mind, multiply it by 10 and realize that it was in Chicago, in America, 120 years ago. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Now, how did he... I guess how did he garner the loyalty of these assistants, and and did anything ever? I know, I mean, I kind of know that a lot of these assistants ended up uh, victims themselves. But I guess, like, how did how did he sort of get into the mind of these people to convince them to go along with these crazy schemes where he was murdering these people? Great question, and I'd be um, I'd be an error to say that I knew how he did it. I know that many thought he was a master of hypnosis. I know that he was sophisticated such that he had hundreds of mistresses, Tim. He had seven or eight wives. Of course, my great-great-grandmother was the only legal one. However, that mattered to Holmes, I have no idea. (laughs) But hundreds of mistresses, all right, so that, like I say, these women who knew what he was, who saw him let off to be executed, who had the jury tell them he was a murderer, we're crying crocodile tears seeing this man, their love, let off. And and it's one of the uh, amazing parts of the story which hasn't been investigated yet. How could those women, these good people, have fallen so deeply in? You know, in the, at the turn of the century, Tim, there were many people, the New York Times included, who thought he was the devil. Really? Yeah. And that's why my family moved to California, to get away from that stigma. That's rough. Jeez. Yeah. Well, I can see in a sense because I mean, people would not even. Uh, it, it seems almost like unbelievable what this what this dude was doing. I don't. You know, when the story, as I mentioned earlier, as the money flows into the story, as we start quote unquote digging up the facts and the truth, we're going to see something we haven't even contemplated yet. And and I try to tell people that. When I first started writing Bloodstains, I started doing what other authors had done, Tim. I looked at the old books. I looked at the old articles. And what I was seeing was that each of these books had been based upon the interviews that Holmes had given to the Hearst Foundation while he was in a prison waiting execution. And one of the things you realize when you researched Holmes's claims or his statements of quote-unquote fact, was that not only was the most prolific serial killer of all time, Tim, he was the most prolific liar of all time. And these books had used his statements as facts to create their nonfiction works. And you know what? I just decided that there's no way you can do that. You've got to go back and start at ground, at ground zero and then create the story. So while I... While Bloodstains is the best I could do at the time, I'm eager to see 
shows like yours, the stuff coming up from Hollywood, what we're going to find as you know, organizations like the Smithsonian, like the Library of Congress, those people that are interested in the story now, what we're going to find out as, quote, unquote, the truth. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting. It's interesting. Uh, it certainly seems like the kind of story that was reported and then just kind of fell by the wayside uh, until recent years when, when there's more media and interest in it all. There's a whole, like, crazy thing here with uh, with this guy Benjamin Pitazel. And, and and the, the poor dude's wife and and his kids and it's like that's a whole a whole crazy saga. So tell tell that story so people can understand, you know, what just why this this whole story captured the attention of America so much. I mean, it wasn't just that this dude was luring people into his castle and killing them. He got into all kinds of other trouble too, and 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 was traveling around the country mixed up in this uh, really strange sort of uh, situation. Again, with this dude's wife and his kids after he had offed the the, the husband. So I guess just to share that story with people because uh, it's one of the more remarkable aspects of the whole thing. You know, it it is. And when I differentiate what Bloodstains is rather than the other books, The Devil in the White City, those, I try to explain to people that my book is about why Holmes was the monster he was. Those other books are the what Holmes was. Mm. So when you want to know about Petzold and the three children that Holmes murdered, you want to you want to go to those pieces. You also want to Google up like the Harper's Magazine article about Holmes, which I f- I still find the best ever written. If you just Google Holmes and Harper's Magazine, you'll come up with a twenty a twenty page article which explains precisely his murder of those three children and the chase across America, which Harper's described. Most people don't even understand this. Harper's described as a greater manhunt than Bonnie and Clyde was 50 years later. Oh, wow. So the sto- it just keeps unraveling. And um, the, the, the Holmes trial, the Holmes, the arrest, the trial, the quote-unquote execution, which we can discuss later, was all about, as you've correctly stated, the three children of his assistant, um, Petzold. And those are the... Um, the murders that he was found guilty of. Not one murder he committed in Chicago at the murder castle was ever investigated or tried by either the Illinois State Police or the federal government. That's pretty crazy. You know, tell, but tell the story. Tell the story of what happened with him and this, and this lady and the kids because it's, it's crazy. You know, that's, that's what I was trying to explain. I'm not the expert on that precise story if, okay. if you want if you want that go to the devil in the white city go to the torture doctor or depraved they explain those facts better than i did i i tried to stay into the parts of the story explaining how this man with this brain could have been so evil hmm. okay all right now did anybody aside from him did anybody ever like get prosecuted because it seemed like he had certainly you know assistance or or uh you know help along the way did anyone else ever ever uh you know face scrutiny for being associated with him or maybe lending a hand uh to his nefarious plots if they if they were i'm not aware of and i think you hit it right most of those people that helped him that got too close he murdered himself yeah i know what happened and i, I again i i I'm trying not to fill in some of these what's for people, so I apologize if we're getting into areas that you are that you were you know are are not exactly your forte. But tell people if you can what 
So he's arrested. He goes on trial. Then they investigate this castle and find all kinds of body parts and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and, and to anyone listening, it's like, oh, you really kind of want to go check this place out because it's got all these, like, hidden passageways and everything and all kinds of little trap doors and stuff. But it's not even really – you can't go – well, you could, I guess theoretically you could go there. But I think it was, like, burned or gutted or something like that in a fire pretty shortly thereafter uh, after he was arrested, right? Yeah, see, and that's one of the most um, exclamatory points I was trying to make about how the story, the facts are false. Um, most of the books claim that the murder castle was burned to the ground. Well, it wasn't. I have a picture of the murder castle with a, with a pickup truck in, from 1937 next to it. It was bought by the federal government. They tore it down, and they put a post office in its place, which... It's one of the most fascinating parts of the entire story because it is a violation of federal law for the government to have knowingly purchased that property, knowing what happened there. They knew precisely what happened there. They tore it down without investigating the murders, the homicides that occurred there, to try to seek justice for those victims. They poured concrete over it and built the post office. So I sent I sent FOIA requests to President Obama. I sent it to the Department of Justice saying, hey, guys, you, we need to make this right. You did the wrong thing. Help me with this. I'll, I'll try to fund, you know, the, uh, the discovery, the scientific discovery, and the excavation of the grounds outside the post office. We won't do anything that, which uh, pre- uh, prevents the post office from staying in operation. I got a letter back from the Department of Justice, very, very blasé, and nothing back from the president, obviously. So, you know, you know we'll, we'll keep after that, but. As to your question, it's probably the most fascinating place in America you can go to now. When I when I started reading all the books, researching my story, Tim, mm-hmm. I realized that these authors had written these stories about this murder castle and this post office now without ever having walked in the front doors. Well, that, that kind of threw me for a loop. So my friend and I, we... We went to Chicago. We walked into uh, Inglewood by cab, obviously, which, if you know anything about Chicago, is one of the most dangerous places in America. It's as dangerous as downtown Baghdad was during the invasion. Yeah, it's pretty hairy in Chicago right now, yeah. And Inglewood is the worst. Mm-hmm. We went in. We asked to go into the basement. They told us, no, no one goes down there. We think it's haunted. It was barricaded. We stayed for three or four hours trying to talk the superintendent into allowing us. And I write about this in the book. And it's a it's a complete chapter about the basement. Mm-hmm. We finally started. Uh, you know how you do that with your hands in L's back and forth, and you try to act like you're making motion picture screens and sets. We were doing that all over, and they started getting excited about maybe being in the picture one day. And the superintendent allowed the custodian to take us down into that basement. Oh boy! And when you know we we cleared the barricade, spider webs, everything. We walked down, and when I walked down those steps, Tim, I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the paranormal. I didn't believe in the supernatural, all right? Mm-hmm. An hour later, when I came back, I believed in all three. Now, as I explained in the book, did I see a little girl on a tricycle like you see in a Stephen King <laughs> movie? No, I did not see a ghost like that. But there was a force. There was an energy down there, which was um, unmistakable. 
And that force wanted me to kill my best friend, and I try to explain it in my book. So it's uh, it's it still scares the life out of me to think about it. Did the, the History Channel? The God. History Channel got me to go, sorry. The History Channel got me to go back down in the basement. They they put it on the haunted history, the murder castle. It's a full hour of the basement at the at the post office. Now with three film crews and makeup and lights and those things that go with you on a, a Hollywood set, I didn't feel the energy that second time. Um, I was disappointed because I was hoping they'd pick up something because as Harper magazine said if ever the paranormal was going to be proven it's going to be at 63rd and wallace Hmm. well that kind of leads to what i was going to ask you did the people who worked there did they even know the history of the building and had they had any sort of weird experiences there every one of them they all refused to go down into that basement it was it was a filthy mess You're, you're you're talking about a united states post office all right right this basement was a filthy mess. It was it was horrible, dead stuff, you know, stuff from 40 years. And as we walked through, you know, the custodian had to go make sure lights would work so we could go to the next section of it. And then we found these original tunnels, these brick tunnels that Holmes had built him so that if the police ever came in the front door of his hotel, he could go down into the basement, climb through these tunnels and and, and escape out the other side of the street. Hmm. And we crawled into those tunnels, and I've never been so scared in my life. Crawling through the tunnels? Yeah, yeah. Crawl. I uh, I, yeah, I, I went in I about half. I went in about halfway. I bailed out, and my friend continued all the way through, but I couldn't do it. Yeah, that's pretty. That's some wild stuff. That's some wild stuff. So, and you 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 mentioned here before, yeah. So he's. I'm trying to sort of like fill in the whole story a little bit so we can kind of then get into your – into the bloodstains part. So he's, he gets arrested. He get, he try, He's tried. He's, he's – uh, as, as far as the official story goes, he's executed. And I thought it was interesting that you mentioned here that he – it's kind of weird. He almost uh, – it almost like plays to what you'd almost expect to see nowadays in a way because they, they paid him an enormous sum of money to like write his – his memoir while he was waiting awaiting execution. It's like I'm surprised nobody in America's come up with that ridiculous idea yet uh, here in 2015 because it would probably sell a lot of newspapers. Uh, so I guess talk a little bit about about that and how he how he profited in- incredibly from you know from from I guess opening up his soul in a way uh, theoretically uh, before his execution. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the most fascinating parts of the story for me. You know, I, and as anyone that reads Bloodstains, and what I what I ask my readers to do is step into my shoes, be there with my grandfather at that dinner party, and have their grandfather tell them that they're the direct descendant of, the, of this demon, and then go try to research the truth themselves. That's that's what the story's about. So, right when when you talk about Holmes giving that interview to the Hearst Foundation. I didn't look at it the way the other authors and history had, Tim. I looked at it like this. Here's this man who could care less about the Hearst Foundation, the New York Times, the Chicago Papers, any readers in history a hundred years later. This genius, this evil genius, was figuring out how he wasn't going to be executed all right Uh and he needed money tim 
and he got seven or eight thousand dollars to sit on a chair and get give this interview to these papers. All right. He needed to pay the superintendent of the prison. He needed to pay the 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 warden. He needed to pay the arrest office, the arresting officers. He needed a right. lot of money for his scheme. And I try and I try to explain that as clearly as I possibly can without having the evidence in hand yet in, in the book. And I think I think I've come very close to allowing people to scratch their head and say, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah, well, you touched on sort of one of the big revelations of uh, of the book, and that is that uh, you argue that he that the whole execution was faked, that he went that he that he continued onward after the alleged uh, mainstream execution or the official execution. So, uh, how much can you tell us about that without without spoiling the book in a sense? Uh, I don't want you to you know give away too much of the book here, but uh, that's a critical aspect of the whole of the whole story that you're advancing. No, no, we can we can test, we we can discuss the book. That's that's no problem whatsoever. If if someone wants to read history, uh, me me talking with you on the radio isn't going to change their mind. So, the um, when you look at after the alleged execution, um, Tim and the New York Times coverage of the quote unquote Holmes curse, how at least forty people that were involved in his arrest his trial or his execution were either murdered or suffered terrible misfortune. Well, after I'd done, you know, three, four years of research on this monster, it started to ring a bell. I started to go backwards from this execution to see the differences or rules or procedures that had been violated before he was put up on that scaffold and so-called hung. Well, almost every thing almost every rule of procedure was violated he wore he wore a he wore a hood he what he didn't have a pathology after the execution which is required by Phil, uh, Pennsylvania law he had um the the warden gave and didn't have to sign the document that he was um allegedly executed the, the statement of certificate everything you looked at when he came down off the scaffolding the body was lowered into a coffin and covered in concrete so that no one could see. The Pinkerton guards, the private guards, the most expensive guards you could hire, he had hired them to monitor the coffin to the cemetery where another, where a huge gravesite was was um, already ready. He had he had bought two, and had them prepared. The coffin with his body in concrete was lowered into the into the uh, grave, and then that was covered with concrete, and the guards stayed there three nights to make sure that concrete hardened that no one could could uh, mess with the uh, the body when when you went backwards on the evidence and the facts you started to realize here's a man who could have cared less about the carbons of his body right he could have cared less about his bones he wasn't he he wasn't God fearing at all as a matter of fact as i write about in the book he challenged god repeatedly that wasn't what he was doing, Tim. What he was doing was making sure no one would ever know the truth. Did anyone... So that, oh, God, God. One day, and, and like I said, when we have the money rolling in, when we have the funds to do, uh, at, 
who I am, I'll have the ability to have a uh, legal exhumation allowed by court law. I will be able to dig it up. The Smithsonian's already told me that they're going to take possession of those remains. They consider them American history. We're going to do a DNA comparison with my flesh and what's in that concrete, in that coffin, and we'll be able to see. And I'll be able to go on shows like yours again, Tim, and say, you know what, everybody, I was completely wrong. It was Holmes. <laughs> or, I'll get, or I'll get to say, I told you so. Exactly. Now, has anybody, before you put your stuff out, has anybody even, because it's, that's such a tantalizing theory that he that he faked his death. Uh, has anybody did anyone advance that prior to you putting this out? Because I'd never heard it before. I'd never even heard it suggested. So when I heard it in in bloodstains, I was like, "This is crazy." So what is this something that's kind of per, you know percolated in, in in the ether for a while, or is this something completely new? You know, that's kind of the way I used to investigate my criminal cases. And what happened, Tim, was. All the other books discussed the execution. Then the next chapter discusses the Holmes curse, okay? Mm -hmm. And how these 40 people suffered these murders or terrible misfortunes. Well, that never worked for me, Tim. That never worked. Instead of just believing in a supernatural curse, I started looking at the obvious, Tim. What about if Holmes had decided he wanted to go back and visit these people that had caused him this this problem? Yeah. So we started looking at the evidence of the so-called execution, and I lay out every piece of fact in that chapter of the book, and, and I'd like your, your listeners to take a look. Take a look and see what you think. And like I say, it's, it's, not, it's not like a Jack the Ripper theory. It's not like the theory of, of who killed Julius Caesar. This is one that we have evidence to prove yes or no. I'm convinced on your show here tonight, uh-huh. I'm convinced it's not him. I know it's not him. I know where he's actually buried, and I explain it in the book at the back of the book. But until we prove that concrete doesn't have homes in it, everyone, not everyone, but most have the right to consider me crazy for even raising that conjecture. But the evidence is there, Tim, and we'll be able to do it one day, sooner or later. I need about $100,000, all right, to get it done. I don't have that on myself. But when the devil in the white city comes out, when Leonardo DiCaprio stars H.H. Holmes, when Paramount Theaters puts it out all over the world, that money will come in easy, and we'll be able to dig that concrete up. Are you going to get any money from the movie? Um, I'm not involved in that movie yet, although... Paramount has bought quite a few copies of the book Bloodstains, mm-hmm. and we think they're on the verge of asking if I'll help them with their story, because Devil in the White City is a great book. Eric Larson's a wonderful author. But that story is about two things. It's about, it's about an architect who built the World's Fair, yeah. and because the author knew that story wouldn't sell by itself. He threw in five or six chapters of the most evil man that had ever lived, H. H. Holmes, at the same time. Yeah, he's like. This. So now, what they're faced, what they're faced with, Tim, is making a movie, The Devil in the White City, which is four chapters. Right now, right. and and they're, and they're faced with a problem. It's it's the script has been written four times, Tim. Oh wow! It was it was owned by Tom Cruise. It was owned by Warner Brothers. Now it's owned by DiCaprio, Scorsese, and Paramount, who have hired another writer to re-script it. So we think pretty soon they're going to contact us and ask us for help with the, with the movie. 
Now, is it possible that uh, that he was involved with some kind of like uh, you know like secret society or or some kind of organization that that sort of not only facilitated him uh, committing these murders, but either facilitated him getting away uh, from the execution or just sort of wanted to tie up all the loose ends after Holmes was taken taken out. Do you know what I mean? Like, is there a possibility that he was involved in, in this is sort of a group effort and once they once they sort of sacrificed for lack of a better term homes they were like all right let's tie up all these loose ends and get rid of all these people who uh might have posed a problem with us could very well be there's a man in philadelphia who believes holmes was a member of what what was the name of the group that went after the um the the, the ark um the american politicians they had benjamin franklin uh jefferson like the Washington. freemasons yeah, there's a there's a guy in Philadelphia. Uh, matter of fact, it's a large group that believe Holmes was very high up in the Freemasons, and what you've raised could could be true. I I don't know anything about it. I've been following their investigation of that matter. Whether the evidence you know will be enough that they can ever prove their their theory, I don't know. And when he was killing these people, it wasn't you. You say he was sort of looking for the elixir of life. So he so he wasn't just sort of like a like a you know how they like say like these serial killers as kids they like torture animals and stuff. He wasn't just like he wasn't just like taking these people down to the basement of the castle and just torturing them for torture's sake for his own for his own you know perverse amusement or whatever. You know he was he was sort of looking for something. Oh yeah, that's that's my theory. Obviously. No one has ever investigated one of the murders that occurred down in that um, basement. Right, exactly, yeah. My theory, because of his, his the trouble he went to to um, dispose of, of the, the human remains, you know, with the acid baths and, and the furnaces in the basement, and the organs that were removed from some of the other murders that you and I will talk about later... I'm convinced that he was experimenting. He he liked to torture. There's no doubt about that. He had that side of him. But he was also looking for that chemical which creates life, which is in the female ovaries. And the majority of his victims were female. They were young. They were They were of reproductive age. And while I can't prove that emphatically i'm convinced that's what he was doing yeah did he ever give a reason why he was doing all this stuff uh officially at least no that's weird did he ever sort of like intimate like like i was just wondering why like people if they ever because i mean he was certainly talkative after he was captured and everything I, i'm just wondering why he was never like hey I, I i like killing people what do you want from me man that's just my deal yeah, but like I said, you've got to remember, everything you saw in one of those interviews, Tim, was a lie. Everything was a lie. There there was a purpose behind it, there was an objective, and the man was lying. So that even when he talks about where and when he grew up, you've got to go investigate those facts to make sure. And when you do, lo and behold, many of them are false. Yeah. Well, you certainly, yeah, you certainly can't trust what he says, so... Yeah. That well, that's sense. the only material they have, Tim. There was no investigation of Holmes um, by the police. They they arrested him for those murders of the three children, like you like you uh, discussed earlier, and that's what his trial was about. 
so that you know none of the other material, the, the murder castle, any of that was investigated by law enforcement. Why? Why did they not pursue that? I think, and this, this gets into an interesting part of the story. I think Chicago wanted to be done with him. He, they wanted to be done with the story. They wanted to be done with the ramifications of the world knowing that this monster had gone on there in right. their face during the World's Fair operating a pharmacy general store. He used to stand out on the uh, the front the front porch, Tim, and wave to the children going home from school. And and in Chicago didn't want that to be known, and I think they did a great job of hiding it for a long, long time. And you know now it's there's no more hiding. You you've got. They're thinking now, Tim. It's going to be the most expensive movie ever made. Really? Yeah. How could that be so expensive? That's weird. Oh, the blue screens of the World's Fair, and they're oh, going to recreate yeah. the murder. They're going to recreate the murder castle, and and the crowds. Um, I think it could be amazing. Yeah, that sounds actually like it would cost some money. Yeah. Um, now, well, somebody asks here: Were there any other similar murders after he had supposedly been executed? I think you kind of touched upon that. Were the were the victims sort of? Did they follow the same sort of mo of of how he killed people after you know these victims of the alleged Holmes curse? Well, there is no mo. There was never a murder investigation of any of the crimes he I committed in the yeah, castle. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of have to just now, go now by the what three, we ch- kinda the, know. you know, the three children that he murdered. I, I don't know the precise mo of that. I think I think he killed. I actually, to tell you the truth, when I read the multiple stories about Holmes killing those three children, Tim, I still don't know why he killed them. I don't understand what it was for, and everything he did was for usually money. And and I and I the research I've done, Tim, I can never find that he made a dollar killing those three children. Hmm. I always just presumed it was because he just needed to, you know. And this is a horrifying way to put it. I apologize, but to ditch the dead weight, if you will. Like maybe he was just tired of dragging these kids around, and he was a ruthless, evil man. So he was like, enough's enough with this with this uh, charade of, of bringing these kids around. I got to get on with whatever I'm doing here. You might be right. It, it, that could work. Do you remember what we were? Do you remember the at the, Luton, at the Luton Palace? We were yes. talking about a rock musical based on the life of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, right. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. Saucy Now's Jack. the time to do you're that. You're a naughty one. Saucy Jack. You're a haughty one. Saucy Jack. Right. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. You're a haughty one, saucy Jack, you're a haughty one, saucy Jack, when the street lamps gaslight flickers and fails, then you see the last light glinting off the entrails, oh naughty, 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 you're a sneaky one, a saucy Jack, you're a cheeky one, saucy Jack. We've touched on this earlier, but uh, let's dig into it now. You're you're of the opinion that that Holmes was uh, involved with the Jack the Ripper murders. I think the I think your your estimation is that it wasn't necessarily Holmes himself, but maybe Holmes and his assistant, or Holmes's assistant. Uh, but definitely that that there's Holmes fingerprints on the Jack the Ripper murders, and of course the Jack the Ripper story is infamous and uh, legendary. So I guess. Um, you know, do you want to make the case for this? Tell me why you think this is the case. We know that he was in England at the time, right? 
Well, no, I can't prove he was in London at the time based on a ship back and forth. We can prove that he was in London based on the letters that were written because it would have been impossible for him to have written them anywhere else but in London. Right, right. Which the Jack the Ripperologist, the, you know, the, the guys that spend their lives as a hobby working on Jack the Ripper, and I, and I have full admiration for them. That's not enough for them. Why, I don't know. But I, I can tell you, if, if your listeners go to my website, um, bloodstainsthebook.com, they'll see the video of, of when I gave the talk at the TED. For uh, The TED allowed me to present the evidence to the audience and then ask them to vote as my grand jury based on that evidence, like I did as a, as a prosecutor in California, whether Holmes... There was probable cause that Holmes was Jack the Ripper and re, uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So the vote came out uh, a, a, a vast majority in our favor. It was it was wonderful to see. Now, if you also go on the website, you'll see the various pieces of evidence. Up on the first page, if you scroll down, you'll see the various pieces of evidence. Yeah, so, bloodstainsthebook.com is the website, folks. Yeah, and, 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 and your listeners don't have to buy the book when they go on there. But check the evidence out. It's 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 a great infamous historical piece, perhaps the greatest mystery of all time. And we're presenting evidence, Tim, which if you gave me the same evidence right now in a current murder trial in California, Tim, Mm -hmm. I'd get a conviction for you. And it's only because people have such closed minds and perspectives about Jack the Ripper, that they won't consider this evidence. And when they give me the chance, coming on shows like yours, they'll see, I mean, they'll see the Dear Boss letter, the most famous letter of all the Ripper letters. The only one that's really authentic. The other, the, the, what people, here's, I'll give you a great example. Yeah. Dear Boss, Tim, was written before the fourth Ripper murder, okay? Mm-hmm. Now grab that number, fourth of the five. Right. There was never a Jack the Ripper, the first three murders. It was created the fourth because of Dear Boss, which is signed Jack the Ripper. Right. Now, now, most people don't realize that. To me, it's astounding still that history just glosses over that fact. So, it was signed Jack the Ripper. It was delivered to the London media, who contacted Scotland Yard and the London Metropolitan Police who ordered the media not to publicize the letter because the letter described the condition of the next victim. And two days later, Catherine Eddowes was discovered, Tim, with that condition. Right. The ear was removed. Then Scotland Yard allowed the media to present that letter to the public on the first page of their paper. So... After the body was found, the letter was the, after the body was found. It was published to the public. The letter was written before she was killed. When we saw that, my friend in Pennsylvania, Mark Potts, took the letter, dear boss, and the archives of Holmes at the University of Michigan to the British Library, whose expert, and we have her opinion, stated that they were the same same guy wrote the London, the Dear Boss letter that wrote the letters, the the Holmes letters at the University of Michigan. Well, having practiced criminal law, I knew the Supreme Court was iffy about expert opinions on handwriting. Right. 
So I also knew that the FBI and the Department of Justice was using a corporation in the University of Buffalo that had created this computer program that would run a million points through each letter on a program to discover similarity on handwriting. I contacted them. They were juiced. They wanted to, they wanted to help us. We sent them the, the best copy of the Dear Boss letter we could get. London wouldn't give us the original for obvious reasons. Right, right. We sent them the, the, the archives from University of Michigan, and they came back with 97% similarity, Tim, and I explained that on the, Dear Bo- on the bloodstainsthebook.com first page. Yeah. They also said that if we funded their effort, allowing them to create the font at the, at the turn of the century that was used, the same letter font, they were, they were convinced they could get 100%. So that now we know who wrote the Dear Boss letter. It was Holmes who was teasing the media and law enforcement regarding the three murders before committed of London prostitutes. Scotland Yard, when I contacted them, Tim told me that they they had been convinced for decades that Jack the Ripper was at least two or three copycats, and that the author of the Dear Boss letter had been an American trying to sound English. They didn't even use boss in the English nomenclature back then. That was a word used by Americans to describe the head of a union. So then you have Jack the Ripper, perhaps the greatest marketing tool ever invented, ever. And what the, what, the, what the Ripperologists do now, Tim, when I go on shows, when I go to the TED, when I, when I do debates, they try to get away from the fact that the author of Dear Boss was the murderer by explaining it was a journalist trying to sell papers, which I then raise, what about the ear? Yeah. When he described the next body will have her ear her left ear removed. And they have no answer, Tim, and it's too much of a coincidence for me. It's certainly too much of a coincidence to not take to a jury in a criminal murder trial today for a current murder. Right, right. It's very intriguing stuff. I mean, I I believe that, like I said before, I I was asking you if the Holmes if the Holmes uh death hoax, let's say, was was a had been advanced before, but I, I believe ho- the idea that it was Holmes has been around sort of for in the in the annals of uh, of riverology, right? You're, this is kind of he's kind of been a sort of peripheral suspect, right? I wasn't the first to bring him up. I've been the first to go in front of a you know a, a group like the TED. Hmm. I was the first to go on History Channel. History Channel allowed me to present the evidence that he was Jack the Ripper. So where when we started this, Tim, people would laugh me off. They're not laughing anymore, and I'm pretty convinced Netflix is going to use bloodstains to work the story hmm. that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. So, you know, it's it's a piece of evidence. Well, and like the computer composite on the first page of my website. The, in 2006, Tim, I'll get off the track a little bit where you went, but in 2006, Scotland Yard and the BBC ran the 13 eyewitness testimonies through their computer to create that composite that's on my page. Right. And we ran the photo of Holmes up alongside it. And you can see, your listeners can go on there and take a look. It's on the first page. Just scroll down a little bit. We took that composite 
um, Tim, to the guy at the at the FBI that retired that did that for a living. He he was like, oh, it's very similar, very similar. He was you know he was playing the game, but then he stopped cold in his tracks, Tim, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, look at the nose. The bridge of the nose is broken in exactly the same place. Then he started looking back through the evidence, Tim himself. And he's like, wait a minute, the same age, the same height, the same weight? This is too much. And I'm telling you, I watched the guy at his desk roll over on that composite. So will I ever be able to prove precisely he was Jack the Ripper, Tim? No, no. I wouldn't be able to do it, Tim, if I came on a show and gave a video that an alien took of one of the murders. <laughs> all right? You know, you and I, you know that. I you get that video, they, please come on my show with us. I'll go on your show, buddy. And and you know the Ripperologists, they're going to find some way that, to tell me no. But I'll tell you this, Tim. If we get to where people will open their minds and consider the evidence, they'll see we've got this backwards. It shouldn't be me trying to prove H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper who committed two or three murders, Tim. It should be London and the British trying to prove Jack the Ripper was this horrible monster that lived in America. Right, right. Is it even, I mean, I think I, I had a Jack the Ripper guest on a few years ago, and uh, I think I raised this point. But it's like, is it even possible at this point even to prove anything with the Jack the Ripper story? Or is it just all, is it always going to be sort of like this... Uh, this this debated idea, you know what I mean? Is it something that can ever be proven anyway? No, I mean, you've got... Well, I, I can only tell you this, Tim. I could take this evidence and get a conviction today, hmm. all right? right I right. could get a guy sent to death with this evidence. Now, if that's not enough, I give up. I give up. There's nothing more I can do except that shows like yours, The TED, my offer to debate anyone in the world... Um, Tim, I, I'll go on. I'll go to Harvard. I'll go to Yale. I'll go to the London University. I'll debate the evidence in front of a crowd of lawyers and judges. I'll, I'll debate it in front of a group of FBI agents. We'll go into the forensics, and you know what, Tim? I'll guarantee you, they'll come away scratching their head. This is good stuff. It's pretty. It's pretty. Uh, yeah. Well, it's pretty compelling stuff. I mean, based on the fact that, like you said, uh, we're. we're because of the way he sent the letters from England, we know he was in in the area. So it's not like uh, well, and let me, it's not let like me you're making a huge you. leap of faith where you're saying like that some dude we have no idea if he was in England at all. It's like we know he was there. So, and you know what, you brought up a great point that I missed when you when you have the dear boss letter and you have the date. All right, you that's postmarked in London. That still doesn't prove it. He could have sent it from the United States and had it postmarked in London. Now. The body was found two days later. Two days after that, it was published in the, in the London papers. Two days after that, the Saucy Jack postcard was written, exclaiming and describing the murder again and the Dear Boss letter. Tim, it took eight or nine days to get across the Atlantic. It's impossible for him not to have been in London. Right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, he couldn't, yeah, you couldn't really fake that from America. It's impossible. Complicated, yeah. There were no airplanes. It's pretty creepy stuff. It's pretty creepy stuff. Why did he, in your estimation, why would he even? He's got a good thing going. (laughs) No pun intended, or or for lack of a better term, he's got a good thing going here in America. Why? Why did he even go to England to, to 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 do this stuff? You know, the greatest. I've thought about that. It's a wonderful question. 
The greatest scientists in the world were in London at the time, the ones leading the uh, forefront of uh, medical, medicine, of science, of longevity, all those things. Holmes was an elegant man, Tim, who was the, he was the master of life insurance fraud. He was a man making three or $400,000 a year. He dressed elegant. He had, he had assistance with them. He had the cases. He loved Paris, Berlin, London. We have a letter that he wrote to his lawyer, not during the Ripper murders, but after, stating that he didn't like London because he couldn't get the New York Herald, his favorite paper there. We have that letter. This was a man who loved to travel. And why he would have been in London at the time, you know, he might have had a woman there, Tim. I don't know. He might have been looking to have a meeting with one of those scientists, you know, the leading scientists of the world. It's anyone's guess. And like you said earlier, which is a great point to bring up, I'll never be able to prove that. Right, right. That's the that's the, that's the the maddening part of the Jack the Ripper mystery in general, where it's like you really can't. You know, as time goes by, you're, you get further and further away from being possible to even prove anything. Well, and you know, Tim, it's a billion-dollar-a-year industry. That's true. That's true. And I was <laughs> they don't, thinking, want, you they know, don't I mean, want it proven. Yeah, that's <laughs> – I guess you're right in a sense. Yeah, that's true. Um, but then, you know, I was just thinking, too, it's like nobody ever foresaw sort of this whole DNA revolution. So who knows? Maybe in like 100 years they'll be able to take us back – psychically to to the time and be able to look precisely at what happened you know who knows you know what i mean it's like you know who knows what's going to happen in the future where mysteries like this may be able to be answered who knows you're you know what i think tim there's a possibility when we excavate the grounds at the murder castle and my friend mark potts believes when we excavate those grounds at the murder castle that post office at 63rd and wallace tim there's going to be evidence there about him being in london Really? Yeah, and I and I have nothing to buttress that with, back it up with, although it makes sense. So it'd be interesting to see if the excavation is done properly, if somebody like the Smithsonian gets in there and, and monitors it so it doesn't turn into a Geraldo Rivera thing. I think we are going to find many new things about American history and maybe Jack the Ripper. What would it take for them to even – we talked about the ex of the body, but what would it even, would you have to do that first, you think, to be able to get into the bottom of that basement? I'm just surprised nobody's tried to do this yet in general, do you know what I mean? Like, if the History Channel took you down to the basement, I'm surprised that no one, you know, I mean, for God's sake, they're in a live exorcism on Friday. Uh, <laughs> so, it's like, I'm surprised nobody's nobody's tapped into this potential for a, for a freak show, live TV special type thing. You know, Tim, I think that's just a matter of time. Once that movie comes out, and it might be two years from now, once that movie comes out and goes around the world and is seen by billions, the federal government's going to have no choice but to excavate those grounds. Hmm. Well, yeah, you say that, but, you know, the federal government has a way of not doing what you think they should definitely do. So you never know. <laughs> you never know you got, what... You got, you got me there. <laughs> you know... If if I if you never count on one uh, entity to do what you'd think is the right thing to do and not do it, that would be the federal government. So I I have uh, you know I'll, I'll hold out hope, but I'm also uh, you know vastly cynical about <laughs> the uh, the federal government's respect for their own responsibility. Um, now we sort of danced around this. You want to get into bloodstains? Obviously, it's your book. Tell us, you know. 
it's pretty remarkable stuff, Jeff. I mean, you you find these diaries that are allegedly that, that you think are written by Holmes, right? That's the that's the gist of the story. Now, how much of this book is is actually what you know is actually one hundred percent true? What's the, what's the percentage here of? Because I was I was having a little trouble with it. I couldn't really tell if this was sort of a historical fiction, if this was. Um, you know, if if you were sort of doing a what if thing, I, I really couldn't really tell exactly what was going on with the book, and that's partially my own fault, you know, because I, I I I just didn't really I should have asked you maybe before I started reading the book. But what what what's the sort of makeup of this book? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll answer you one question about that subject, okay? Because as on the front of my book, I say based on a true story, and right, exactly. So, when I published the book, my lawyers and I went through this. And when an author writes a historical piece, one of the toughest decisions they have to make is calling it nonfiction or based on a true story. Because you get into libel and slander and lawsuits and, and those things. And, Tim, I can't prove everything in my book. I can't prove he's not buried in Philadelphia. I can't prove that he's Jack the Ripper. I can't prove a number of things in that book. But I tell you what, as time goes by, each of them will be proven. Now, whether what you can say as a reader, whether what's true and what's not, I tell you what, what I do is I ask my readers to do this. Pick the book up. Look at it as a novel. Read the novel, but place yourselves in my shoes at that dinner party when your grandfather tells you the truth. Mm. Go through the story. Go all the way to the end. You get halfway through, and it's a tough story. I mean, we're talking about a little girl in the basement with her father, the, the detective from Chicago. Yeah, that's a crazy story. And Holmes torturing them both. And I can tell you this, that's a true story. But I can tell you this, that's a tough one to keep going. And I try to get my readers to keep going because the end, the end is a great part of my story. And it becomes my, the relationship between my grandfather and I and how this man that I pretty much hated my, my early life turns into this man that I admired for the secret he kept and, and the protection he gave his family from this horrible story. And, and, and when you see that ending, and you'll know that, we're going to prove this story true. It's just a matter of time. Right, right. Well, I guess one of the things that that troubled me, I guess, reading the book is I, I looked on the website. I read the book, obviously. There's no, there's no like uh, reproduction of these diaries. There's no photographs of them anywhere. I mean, is there any? Do you have any sort of like place where people can see these things to know for a fact that you actually even got them in the first place? I mean. Uh, that's, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a pretty obvious question to ask. So, you know, I don't yeah. feel like I'm putting you on the spot. So, it's, I mean, where, where can oh. we see these diaries so we know that you actually got them? Never. There's a picture of the ammunition cases they came in. You'll never see the diaries, and I'll give you three words, okay? Mm-hmm. And and this will be the last I answer about this question on advice of counsel. Statute of limitations. They involve homicides. All right. Mm-hmm. Homicides committed by Holmes? Yes, and they would be confiscated immediately. So I'm going to tell you right now, Tim, they're false. I made them up. What do you mean by that? Just what I told you. 
So you're saying that the, you didn't find that you didn't get these diaries? No, I'm telling you statute of limitations. <laughs> you're confusing me, Jeff. Uh, they would be evidence, <laughs> Tim, if they existed. Yeah. Come on, come on, dig in, to, uh, jump with me on this. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm on the ledge with you, brother. Come on. <laughs> if they existed, they wouldn't be mined. I suppose, but couldn't you just take the diary? Nope. That's as far as I can go, Tim. I, uh, I've okay. done this for four years now. I yes. understand. I understand. Yeah. I understand. I'll just got. And you know what? And I tell everybody when you read the book, just pick it up as a novel. Don't believe any of it. Pick it up as a novel. All right. I, then, I'll just well, then, I'll just say this, okay? You don't have to respond. I'll, this is my yeah. advice, okay? I, I'm not counsel, so my advice isn't as <laughs> isn't as valuable as that. Um, but if you're worried about them taking the taking the shit away from you, I would just take them and scan them and PDF them and throw them out there on the web and let everybody have them. And and then if they take them, they take them. They're still out there, so it's not like you're going to lose them. That's what I would do personally. But you know, I can see how. If they're real and you have them, they'd be a valuable sort of family heirloom. You wouldn't want someone to take them away from you, and you might be concerned about sort of whatever supernatural uh, connection there may be to them where you wouldn't want someone to get their hands on them for fear of what would happen to them. But it's to me, it's like, I feel like personally, your story is really compelling. I would I would love to be able to, to see these things so that you would shut up the haters. You know what I mean? I'm sure you'd like to shut up the haters. No, I'm not concerned at all. I'm I'm doing fine. I um I go, when has a novelist been asked to present at the TED? When when have have has a novelist been asked to present it in Michigan and Chicago and New York City and San Francisco and LA evidence to a crowd of law enforcement? It's it's fine. I'm I'm doing fine with it and when we prove each piece of evidence Everyone will know I couldn't have made this story up. So anyway, that, okay. I, that's as far as I can go. But it, you know, your, your questions are great, and I don't I don't mind them at all. I used to. I used to mind them a lot. Right, right. I mean, you can see I'm, my perspective I'm fine, on I'm this. I'm fine with it now. I'm you know, fine I, with I it. hope you can see my perspective. It's like sure, sure. I want to sure, give you the benefit why, of the doubt. It's like if somebody that's has why it, I yeah. call it based on a true story. I let my readers decide. All right. Okay. Well, it sounds like you don't want to go any further on sort of the diary part as far as, like, what the deal is. So I won't push nope. you any harder. <laughs> I won't push you any harder on that. Um, but, Dory, you find these diaries, and that's what sort of turns you on to this possibility that that uh, that he faked his death. And that that's sort of what set you down this whole path in the first place, right? You know what, Jim? I'll tell you something. Faking the death... Until I prove, and this is a piece of evidence that history has in its hands, Tim. I'm not making this up. Until I prove that it's not him in that concrete, all your questions about afterwards, the world will consider crazy. Me crazy, not you. Me, okay? When we prove it's not him, I'm on, I'm on the road. And that's what I need to do. And that's what I've decided will be the next step. When that concrete comes up and the Smithsonian says, you know what? Mudgett was right. That's not him. That's not his DNA. Then all the stuff that I've been called crazy about for three years now yeah. will, I hope someone has the courage to stand up and eat their words. I, Knowing, like you said, our society, I doubt it. But I, I hope someone has the courage to stand up and eat their words. We'll see. 
Right, right. Well, it's a very, like I said, it adds a whole interesting layer to all this. Now, what's the, you say you need $100,000, what, to get the concrete out of the ground? Uh, you know, the court proceedings, you've got to file the motion. You've got to hire the lawyers in Pennsylvania. You've got to go through all that stuff. It's going to be appealed by anyone supposedly in my family line. You've got to go through that. It might take two or three years, and then you've got to arrange that it be done scientifically that the, that the Smithsonian agrees to. And all of a sudden, Tim, you're talking about 2000 bucks an hour. What? You, oh, oh, I see. So the lawyers and shit like that. Well, or the, the, the excavation. Right. The right. exhumation. You've got guys walking around with gloves and masks and the whole stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then the DNA, it's not I, – I learned – you know that, that latest thing last year, Tim, about the, the, the Ripper and the guy proving who the Ripper was because of the DNA on the shawl and, and it was shown that that was a bunch of malarkey? Mm-hmm. Well, what you learned if you followed that story closely was – DNA is not some four-day deal. It took six months for them to run that third and fourth degree DNA down to prove it was wrong. Right. And it's expensive. And that's the stuff I'm going to have to write a check to unless I can get a history channel or a science, you know, sci-fi channel to step up to the plate. Now I'm hoping that happens. Well, you know, if the movie proves out to be super popular, like I said, I mean, they're doing an exorcism on Friday, so I can't see how much farther behind something like that could be uh, to exhume HH. Maybe that'll be next Halloween's big special. Wouldn't that be something? You should get in touch with the people doing the exorcism. Where are they doing that? Destination America. Destination America. They're doing an exorcism of Holmes? No, no, no. They're doing an ex- just a live exorcism. Oh, okay. All on right. Friday night. I will. So you, I will. You, you should be like, hey man, uh, I got. You think that's crazy? I got a story for you. Help me get my uh, great grandfather exhumed. Uh, do you have any idea who this dude is in the concrete? Do you have any theory about who that might be? You know, I think it's his guard, but I can't prove it, and I doubt we ever will be able to. The DNA, you know, will establish that it's not Holmes, but who it is, I don't know if you could. I, I'm not an expert in DNA. Um, I don't know how much it tells you. I do know it will tell us it's not my DNA, that's for sure. Right, obviously, yeah. yeah. But you have no ind- indication from your from your research? No, the, the chapter you know, in my book is theory. Uh, in the book, I theorize that it is the guard that was hung in his place, but I can't prove that. No. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, that that part of the story, the idea that the death was faked, is is, is pretty remarkable. I mean, it it adds up in a lot of ways. Uh, it's very shady. The whole thing went down very shady. So it's like, what is what is really going on here with this dude? You know, unless it's like sort of a Hannibal Lecter thing, where they were like so put off by how evil he was that they just didn't want to even, you know what I mean? Where they they had him strapped up and masked and all that shit. Could be. You could be right on. And and like I say, Tim, it's one of those great things in history that we can prove. It's there. We know exactly where it is. I mean, I was there last year at the gravesite with some friends, and it's uh, the, the cemetery fakes where he is unless you can prove you have a connection because they have people visiting it all the time. Right, right. Yeah, I, I read that part. And, in the book. you know, we went back, we went back, and. It's an amazing picture. I don't know if you've seen it on my Facebook page, but the tree that's over the gravesite that I write about in the book is the only one that's been repeatedly struck by lightning. It's like just 
totally shit. Like you say, shady is a great word, spooky. But it's really, really spooky to see. The other trees are just pure trees, pure oak trees, or whatever, elm, or whatever you guys call Phil, Pennsylvania trees. I'm not an expert arborist. But this one is just shattered, repeated strikes. It's an amazing thing to see. Well, there's certainly, you know, makes you wonder, like, you talk about possession and stuff. It makes, really makes you wonder what, just how, how, you know, what was going on with this guy. You know what I mean? It's like, was he, was he, was he truly evil in an evil, you know, you, you talked about what drove him in the book. Uh, you say that's what you were sort of striving for in, in the book. It's like, it's just remarkable, like, what could possess somebody, no pun intended, to be so evil. I think he enjoyed it. I think um, there was he had a choice, and that's one of the reasons I, I go on shows, uh, shows like yours, Tim, to be able to explain to your listeners that this malarkey, this baloney, that people you know try to say that this evil is some disease or condition we have in our head. Um, look at my family. No one after him. Here we came from the most evil thing that ever lived, and no one in my family even jaywalked. All right, two were war heroes. One was a mayor in Florida. In Florida, they're all good American taxpayers. They all made choices to be good, and this man came from a good family. He made a choice to be evil, and I like to be able to stand up in front of crowds like yours and say, "This stuff." When you go on and you see these doctors. You know, trying to make excuses for these killers is is baloney. They they made choices. They wanted to hurt someone and be evil. And I and I think if that's the only thing we prove from bloodstains and Holmes, the the history of Holmes, that's enough right there, Tim. It's enough for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's pretty twisted. You wonder why this. You hope you you know. It's just disappointing, I guess. You know, it's like someone with that great an intellect would turn to evil. It's like why why would you do that, dude? He could have he could have really changed the world in a positive way, but. Who knows? You know, just very dark. It's uh, it's scary stuff. Now, while while you were sort of doing all the book chronicles, you know, you're you're doing this investigation. You kind of like, well, obviously you develop some some illness here, and it's also it sort of raises the question in the book: is is all this stuff happening because of your illness, or is it because of uh, your possession of these diaries? Sort of a thriller in a way. It's very remarkable in that sense. Uh, I really like that part of the book. Thanks. I give my readers I give my readers the opportunity. Many many of my neurologists believed it had to do with my epilepsy, Tim, and nothing to do with Holmes. Right, right. But you kind of leave it up to people to decide for themselves in a way, which I kind of like. You know, it's it's very well. It's uh, like it's like people today, the ones that believe in paranormal and the ones that don't, Tim. I mean, there's no reason why some do and some don't. It's it's you know, it kind of defines who we are as separate human beings, if you ask me. Hmm. Now, do you – let me think here for a minute what direction we want to go in next. Well, I guess talk a little bit about sort of what, what was happening. How much – what's that? Uh, I hate to interrupt you, but how much more we got to go, my friend? About 45 minutes. I don't know if I'll be able to go that long. I have to go get some more medicine I, for that condition we talked about. I, um, I do right. take I do take my med- – how long have we been on I the tell show you, for now? We've been on for about an hour and 18 minutes. You want to wrap it up at 90 minutes? Sure, that would be great. Sounds good. That. Well, I guess talk a little bit about sort of that that what you were going through during the book. I mean, tell people about that about that experience because I mean, you're hearing voices. You're you're you really seem to go through a metamorphosis. I mean, at one point, I wasn't sure if 
I, it sounds like you were you you know driven to almost kill at one point and or several points in the book. So I guess talk a little bit about that. I mean that's a pretty remarkable experience to go through. Yeah, the voices were there. Um, I try to explain how you know I woke up in the back of an ambulance, um, being told that I was dead and they had revived me, which from a condition I'd never had before. I learned about Holmes and had started my research and investigation. Um, there are many of my friends believe that it has it's completely involves you know Holmes and 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 my change in life. As you discussed earlier, and, and this I think is enough for someone listening that might want to read the book, Tim. I give them the opportunity. They, there's a path they can take. I explain exactly how the neurologist explained my condition. And how they they believed there was a tumor in my in my head, which wasn't there before I learned about H. H. Holmes. Right. And then others, you know, I give the the opportunity to explain that when I went down into that basement and saw what the murder castle looked like, having never seen a picture, and then have those images turn out to be true, it, uh, I I I don't believe in images uh tim i don't believe in visions or voices all right but those things those facts which slap you on the face are hard to get around sometimes and i try to let my readers have the choice in the book and i'm glad and i'm glad you think it was it was a thriller because that's what i wanted to write and the only way it's proven tim and this this is what you and i got into earlier when those remains are dug up when we prove that he was Jack the Ripper, when that excavation happens at 63rd and Wallace, I'm, I'm going to get to stand back and say, I told you, I told you. And until then, I can't. I go on shows, and, I, and you know what? I don't have, when I first started this, Tim, I had a host like yours that would say that they thought I was crazy, goofy, that stuff. I don't get that anymore because they know, you know, you, you don't get asked to go give a presentation on the TED if you're a goofy writer. Right, right. They're they're very careful who they ask. They're very careful who they uh, review their evidence. I don't get to go. You don't get to go on the History Channel and and on national TV. Those things. So it, it's turning the corner, and I think Jack the Ripper's only a matter of time. I mean, the the stuff you and I discussed about the Dear Boss letter. I I just I get excited as all heck about that. I love going on a show like yours and explaining. There wasn't even a Jack the Ripper, the first three murders. Right. That's just what ripperologists, historians, and authors have worked backwards to make the story sell and what the London media people did to sell papers. Well, I, I find that amazing. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable stuff. I mean, this dude was – he was uh, he was a character, for lack of a better term. He was quite, he was quite the character, Uh it's and 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 it's funny too. You look at the picture of him, and you're it, he's a creepy looking dude. But like for the time, he wasn't. You know, people need to know that. You know what I mean? It's like he looks. If you saw a dude looking like that, like nowadays, you'd you'd, you'd walk to the other side of the street. But back in the day, he he sort of was like quite the charmer. Yeah, I don't know if if he had his his hair done modern, his you know, and his mustache shaved off, and he had some it's the he mustache, had a Tommy really. Tommy yeah. Bahama shirt on and. Uh, <laughs> You know, and carrying a gimlet in his hand, he'd probably get by. I suppose it's that it's that mustache, dude. That's a <laughs> that was pretty common back then. That That's was, what I mean. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I wouldn't trust a dude with a mustache like that nowadays. I mean, he'd be a hipster. Yeah, are there any movie stars that wear that mustache anymore? I'm, I'm not sure they do. Only porn stars. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, how do you do? You have any sort of like uh, funding set aside yet for this potential? Ex- have you done any sort of steps to? You know, you're saying you need the money and everything, but it's like, let's say they drop the money on you tomorrow. Could you just? What would be the plan of action here? I mean, do you do you have it sort of ready to go, or you got to kind of, you know, have you taken any preliminary steps to to get this this thing rolling? Oh yeah, the documents are all ready to go, and uh, I have the uh, lawyer in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, ready to prepare. So it, we we're ready. It's just it's a matter of time. It's it's history. And when you deal with history, when you deal with Pearl Harbor, all those stuff, Tim, as you realize being a host for so long on your great show, you have to have a patience with history, Tim. You have to have the funding. And if you don't, you're going to look a fool. And and you've got to sit back and relax. And that's why, you know, what I'm doing now is I'm writing other books about other subjects. And when we have – you know what? I'm – Everything is ready to go. We just have to wait for The Devil in the White City to come out. We've got probably the most expensive movie ever to be made. We've got Hollywood going to spend $30, $40, $50 million in advertising about H.H. Holmes. I'm just going to jump on and ride with it, Tim, when it comes. And then if they do the smart thing and ask me to help them with their story... Well, it's you know it, it'll be uh, it'll be easy riding, and I think at that point I'll be able to convince the people that have those funds. A hundred thousand dollars in Hollywood is nothing, Tim. As right, far right. You know, as much as I know. I but, mean, they may you know, they may they may want to do it leading into the movie as part of a you know sort of a generate the publicity and get a buzz. Can going. you imagine Leonardo DiCaprio there watching them do it? <laughs> well, what about yeah. this, dude? I don't want to be the guy that's like I don't want to be super pessimistic, dude, but. You know, we've Hollywood is a fickle place. What if what if they put all this money into the movie? Like, look at that Steve Jobs movie that just came out this weekend. It was a huge bomb. Like, what if what if the movie comes out and it's a bomb? Are you going to be? I, I presume, I'd be pissed. So, I mean, that would kind of throw a lot of water on this in the sense that it's like, ah, geez, the, the public interest isn't there. You know, it's funny. I've got a guy selling my book in Hollywood um, to uh, HBO and AMC. Those, those that stuff and. Yeah. He explained to me how Hollywood works. You don't know how it works, Tim. None of those movies that you're claiming are a bomb lost money. They were all funded by Chinese bonds. They came over. Hollywood didn't have to put a dollar into them. And then even if they don't sell in the States, they're sent worldwide on the discs or whatever they do now, I, I'm not sure of the mechanism or the technology, but even the movies they're claiming now to you that you read are a bomb, they're still making a fortune on. All right, fair enough. Um, okay, so what's what's this is the wrap-up. What's next for you? What do you got cooking beyond uh, Bloodstains? You say you're working on some other stuff, so what can folks look forward to uh, from, from Jeff Mudgett? Oh, yeah, I've got a novel that's coming out soon. It's um, I've always wanted to write a detective story. When I was a boy, I used to love Raymond Chandler. I used to love um, um, any of the the James Bond, the John D. McDonald stuff. And I always knew that that was a very tough genre to write. So I I wanted to give myself a chance because, let's face it, I've sold thousands and thousands of books, Bloodstains. But it's because of who I am and my my platform as the great-great-grandson. 
now I wanted to see if I could write a book that sells because of, of my ability to write. So I'm putting out a book called Falling in Purple that's a detective novel with a, with a modern-day love story wrapped up inside. And it'll be out here in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited about that, and we'll see how it goes. Nice. You got a website to direct folks to for that? Not yet. It hasn't. We ha- it's just going to manuscript now. It'll be. Uh, we'll get it out to publish pretty soon, and then we'll put a website up. Also, if any of your listeners are interested, I think my manager still has some signed copies of Bloodstains, so that if they are interested in reading the the print book, go to that bloodstainsthebook.com and and note to my manager Kelly that you heard about a signed copy on your show, and I think he still got some left. Nice, nice. Yeah, folks, check that out. Check that out. And like I said, Jeff, you should get in touch with this uh, Discovery America. They seem like the type of people who would jump at the opportunity to uh, get involved in this story. They like that kind of stuff. So maybe uh, maybe wait to see how the Exorcism special does. But if it's a big hit, I'd hit them up. I'd be like, hey, man, let's, let's go after this Holmes thing because it could, be, could change the face of history. I'll take you up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh Sorry that I uh, anticipated a longer interview, but I appreciate the time that you uh, had the chance to give to us. I really do uh, enjoy the conversation. It's, it feels like you're on the cusp of either a really huge story or, or something you know, that's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Hey Tim, thanks a lot. I enjoyed your show a lot. You're a, you're a knowledgeable uh, you're knowledgeable about the subject, and your ability to uh, run the show is uh, admirable. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, thank you very much, my friend, and uh, have a great evening. Okay, good night, Tim. Good night. There you go, folks. You go. That was Jeff Mudgett. The book is Bloodstains. The website is bloodstainsthebook.com. Check it out. If you're listening to us on Blog Talk Radio, this is Benal of America Audio. You can find out more from us at benalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. All kinds of interviews there, over 250, I believe, at this point, uh, with all kinds of folks, covering all kinds of topics in the world of the strange and unusual, UFOs, Bigfoot, conspiracies, ghosts, all that great stuff. And it's all absolutely free, and you can find it, once again, at banalofamerica.com. We're also on Facebook, so just punch in Banal of America and like us. As I said, we have a vast archive at BOA, and it is absolutely free. How do we do that? That's simple. We do it via donations from the Banal of America listeners. You can find out how to help us out, and we'd greatly appreciate it if you could, to uh, head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't like doing Internet money-type stuff, you can always uh, donate via the P.O. Box at Banal of America. The address is at BOA. Uh, let me see. I'm a little thrown off here because we kind of cut the show earlier than expected. So I don't have much else to say. I can't really tell you what we got cooking on the next edition of the program. I got a few ideas of uh, who we'll be talking to. So stay tuned to Banal of America on Facebook and BOA proper for more information about the next edition of the program. I'm going to try and get some shows out to you a little faster than I have over the last uh, few months. But you never know. We'll see what happens down the line. I believe this is episode 8926. So we've got about seven shows left here before we wrap up season nine. And then, of course, comes the uh, the 
remarkable BOA Audio Season 10. So we're on the cusp of history ourselves here on Banal of America. But like I said, I can't tell you who the next guest will be, but I got a few in the pipeline, so hopefully sometime in the next few days I can announce something for the next edition of Banal of America. With all that said, thank you folks for listening tonight. Thank you so much for your support of the program, the hardcore listeners who've been around forever, and the newcomers who are just discovering BOA. Thank you for your support of the program. It is enormously appreciated. You are the fuel that drives the BOA mothership. And with all that said, thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall. Thank you for listening and signing off.